Dragon's Lair, the fantasy adventure where you become a valiant knight on a quest to rescue the fair princess from the clutches of an evil dragon. You control the actions of a daring adventurer finding his way through the castle of a dark wizard who has enchanted it with treacherous monsters and obstacles. In the mysterious caverns below the castle, your odyssey continues against the awesome forces that oppose your efforts to reach the dragon's lair. Lead on, adventurer. Your quest awaits. Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Dragon's Lair, an interactive cartoon movie developed by Advanced Microcomputer Systems and published by Cinematronics for the arcade market in 1983, with many ports, remasters, and re-releases occurring in the 40 years that followed. We'll be talking about that in just a minute, but first, as is customary, we're going to do just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 17. I remain excited with what we're doing here, and I hope you all are as well. If you'd like to reach out and let me know how I'm doing, give some feedback, have suggestions about future episodes, I would love to hear from you. I do have a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. So if you'd like to reach out, drop me a note, talk about classic games or technology or suggestions, feedback, whatever it is, shoot me a note. I am definitely interested in hearing what you think. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to go over real quickly what the anatomy of an episode is because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format. We always start by talking about the history of the game and its historical context, where it sits in the overall history of video and computer gaming. Then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section, and I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or anything like that, but we do talk about the game from a couple of different perspectives, those being the graphics. How does the game look? Sound and music. How does the game sound? Narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and the overall feel. How does it feel to play the game today versus when it was originally released? And we do all that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it's good. It is definitely a classic. You should go out and play it immediately. Well, at least as soon as you can, because it is just that darn good. Highly recommended from my perspective. Just below the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are games that are still really good experiences. They're still lots of fun. You should certainly play them. I still highly recommend them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or the genre. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. Not quite Pantheon level, but still really fun experiences. Once we go beyond the golden oldies, we get to our mediocre mentions. And these are the games where we start to get into the, I don't know that I can really recommend them territory. They may have aged a little bit, and they may have had a couple of issues early on, even when they were released. They may not be bad experiences per se, and you still might have fun with them, especially if you have a particular love of the genre in which they live, but these are games that I cannot recommend to the rest of the population, generally speaking. Beyond those, we reach the footnotes. 
These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend you play any of the games that reach our footnote category. They have just aged, or they may have aged, very poorly, or they may just not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair is an interactive animated cartoon movie developed by Advanced Microcomputer Systems and published by Cinematronics in the arcades all the way back in 1983. Now, the thing is, our story begins not in an arcade, but on a mainframe computer in 1976, which is where one of the earliest interactive adventure games, simply titled Adventure, and otherwise known uh, in some circles as Colossal Cave Adventure, was created. Adventure was created by William Crowther, who was an avid computer programmer who also happened to be an accomplished cave explorer. In the early to mid-70s, Crowther spent his time exploring a number of cave systems across the United States, with extensive time spent in Kentucky's Mammoth Cave, which was the largest cave system in the world. Crowther would navigate these caves and, like a true explorer, would map out the various tunnels, passages, and caverns as he went. He paired his love of exploration with his computer programming background, and what he would do is take all of this hand-mapped data that he would capture when he's going through all these different tunnels and cave systems, and he would then load that data into computer systems, which he would then use to print out paper maps of the caves that he would explore. And we have to remember, this was the early 1970s. This was not as easy as just scanning in a picture or points of data or navigating somewhere on Google Maps. None of this stuff existed at the time. Crowther was a true technological pioneer with what he was doing with the map data and reading that into computers and then printing it back out. And this particular hobby that he had developed has been shared or had been shared with his wife for many years until eventually in 1975 when they unfortunately divorced. Now, that gave him a little bit of additional free time on his hands, so he was struck by inspiration. He loved exploring, and he assumed that other people would as well, though not everybody had caves or interesting landmarks and locations near them that they would be able to readily explore. So he began to think about how he could bring that experience, that sense of exploration to the masses, all without anyone having to leave the comfort of their homes. Drawing on his knowledge of cave systems and fondness for the tabletop game Dungeons & Dragons, as well as his expertise in computer programming, Crowther began developing a game that would allow individuals to explore a gigantic, mysterious cave using the power of modern, at least for the time, computers. He began designing that experience, and he settled on an interactive fiction kind of game where players could type real words and phrases into a computer, and it would interpret those commands and do something, whatever that action was, like walking north or picking up an item. And I do want to talk just briefly about the whole concept of interactive fiction or text adventure games and kind of the way they played. So way back when, before there was point-and-click graphical adventure games, there were text games, and a lot of those used text parsers, meaning 
rather than clicking with a mouse or using your keyboard to navigate a scene, you would actually type directions into the computer and then the interpreter for the game would determine what to do. So moving around, the reason it's called interactive fiction is because it was almost like playing a book, albeit at certain points, you would be able to put in an action and then that action would play out something on the screen, like we were talking about, walk north, pick up item, whatever that might be. And then the story would branch depending on what you did and what you had. You might encounter monsters where you would be able to use items or weapons on them. Once again, not really with a graphical format, at least early, early on. And the whole interactive fiction genre actually still exists today and is still fairly popular amongst at least a portion of the gaming population. But uh, William Crowther was a pioneer in working through this, and his original game was an early instantiation of this whole concept of interactive fiction or a text-based adventure game. In fact, it might have actually been the first text-based adventure game um, because this kind of experience had really not been done before. This was a true interactive game where you, the player, would control the action. You could enter rooms, you would be greeted with rich descriptions relayed to you by a computer narrator, and based on your actions, you'd either survive or perish in the deep cave systems that you were exploring. It was basically like we were talking about, like you were the main character in your own novel. And that that game, that experience, would originally evolve and result in the release of a full-fledged game simply titled Adventure back in 1976. That itself would evolve into one of, if not the most influential computer games of all time. And to understand how influential, consider this. This is the game that inspired Roberta Williams, who is the legendary Sierra Online co-founder and adventure game creator. This is what inspired her to begin her adventure game development career. It also inspired other intrepid developers to develop add-ons and enhancements to the game, which would then be ported to numerous consoles and operating systems in the years that followed, and would pretty much single-handedly create the adventure game genre. Without adventure, we may be living in a world without the concept of an adventure game, so this is kind of a big deal. So there were many people inspired by adventure. And one of those individuals was a man named Rick Dyer, who was the president of a video game company called Advanced Microcomputer Systems. Dyer had seen and played adventure, and he was blown away. He was so enthralled that he wanted to create something similar, but he wanted to create an even more immersive experience. His goal was to create a game like Adventure, but combine images and sound with it to create an experience where the player would feel like they weren't just the main character in a novel, but was rather the leading star in their own movie. And there was only one problem. How the heck would someone create an interactive movie in the early 1980s when the height of video game technology was simple sprite-based arcade games? So Dyer began to prototype some ideas, and in the process, he invented something he called the Fantasy Machine, which was designed to play a graphic adventure entitled The Secret of the Lost Woods. So let's talk about what this Fantasy Machine was. Basically, 
it was a machine similar in some ways to a really advanced Rolodex. If anybody remembers what a Rolodex was, it was basically your Outlook calendar list or your Outlook contact list before it all became computerized. It would be a thing that would basically have a bunch of cards in it and you could use a wheel on the side and navigate through these cards. So this was similar in concept to something like that, where there was a machine that would present an image and audio file or an image and audio clip to a player. And then there would be a choice that would allow that player to move on to one of several different scenes. When they would choose a different scene, then the machine would mechanically move on to whatever scene was supposed to go on to next or was going to be the scene to be played based on the player action and the game would continue. And now there were multiple iterations of this concept. There was one that was, like I said, kind of Rolodex based. There was one that was tape based, which literally required fast forwarding and rewinding to different locations. There was also a version that used a primitive video disc with static images and sounds, but that was pretty much as far as it went. Dyer thought he had a hit on his hands, so he started to pitch this concept to a bunch of different toy manufacturers and it was not successful. No toy company actually wanted to invest and take on the prospect of developing Dyer's fantasy machine. In fact, some people were so disinterested, and there was one example of this at least, where the company even walked out in the middle of the presentation. Nobody thought this was going to sell. Dyer, however, felt like he had something. He just realized it couldn't sell or it wouldn't sell as well in its current format. So one day, as Dyer had this idea in the back of his head, he went to the theaters and he saw a new animated film, which was called The Secret of Nim. And that experience would both serve as inspiration and would change everything that he was thinking about as it related to his fantasy machine. The Secret of Nim was an animated film created by a group of ex-Disney animators who had left Disney over some creative differences while working on the film The Fox and the Hound. Don Bluth, who was the more senior member of the animators that had departed Disney, stood up a new company shortly after their departure back in 1979, and that company was named Don Bluth Productions. He, along with Gary Goldman, John Pomeroy, and eight other ex-Disney animators set out to begin developing their own animated features as an independent studio. The team had limited success in the early days of the studio, until eventually they released their first feature film, which was The Secret of Nim, back in 1982. Now, the critical and box office response wasn't exactly phenomenal, but... Nearly everyone agreed that the visuals and the quality of the animation were incredible. And this film, at least from those perspectives, could easily compete with any Disney animated film that had released up to that point. Rick Dyer saw this film and he thought, this is the missing piece. This is the piece that is missing from his fantasy machine. There was no interest in a device that simply displayed static screens with audio narration. But creating a fully animated experience at the same level of quality as a feature film, that could be a game changer. So Dyer went back to the drawing board, and he reviewed his current prototype adventure title, which was once again called The Secret of the Lost Woods. As part of that game, there were a number of elements and locations that were created that hadn't been included in the original Fantasy Machine prototype. One of those locations from that game was nicknamed or named The Dragon's Lair, 
And that was something that Dyer thought could potentially be turned into a full-fledged interactive experience. So Dyer sat down and he began to flesh out his idea. He wanted to create what would effectively be an interactive movie where the player could choose from a series of options in any given scene and the movie would switch to and play an appropriate scene depending on those actions. Some actions would result in success and the story continuing. Other actions would end in peril with you dying and having to repeat and or uh, lose the game. With the concept overall defined, Dyer approached Don Bluth and the team about creating the animations for the title, while development would be handled by Dyer's company in partnership with Cinematronics, which was an arcade developer who up to that point had primarily been known for creating vector graphics in arcade games or arcade games based on vector graphics. And just so that everybody has awareness, when I say vector graphics, I mean line-based arcade games, so... There's kind of there's sprite based arcade games where very similar to what you might see in a lot of NES titles where you have characters or you have monsters on the screen that are made up of a bunch of pixels. And ultimately, those pixels come together into sprites and those sprites are effectively images. Uh, Vector graphics are a little bit different. They are line based. So rather than seeing a bunch of sprites and pixels on the screen that effectively make up an image, you see a bunch of lines and geometric shapes on the screen that make up the image on the arcade monitor. A prime example of a vector-based arcade game would be the original Star Wars arcade game back in the early 80s that Atari had released, if anybody has some awareness of that one. So anyway, Cinematronics had been known for creating vector graphics-based arcade games of the time, and they partnered with Dyer's company to develop and, and publish and ultimately distribute the game that Dyer wanted to create with Don Bluth's animations. Now, in order to bring a fully animated interactive movie to life, would require investment in a different kind of technology than traditional arcade games. And this is where Laserdisc technology comes into the story. Laserdiscs were an advanced, at least for the time, video disc format, similar in size to vinyl records, but designed to store video and audio signals as opposed to traditional record formats. These discs could be read by a laser, and assuming you put them in a compatible player, you'd be able to watch movies with high-quality visuals and true surround sound audio. So I do just want to talk briefly about Laserdisc quality, because it strikes me that that format today is not really around anymore. There are certainly collectors and collectible items out there related to Laserdisc, but I'd venture a guess and say a lot of people don't own a Laserdisc today. Generally speaking, Laserdiscs were better than video cassettes from a quality perspective at the time. They were actually the precursor to what would eventually become DVD technology later on, and obviously DVDs would evolve into Blu-ray and all of that kind of evolution that's happened and the rest is history. Now everything is is pretty much streaming, but there's still Blu-rays out there. Anyway, Laserdiscs were fairly expensive at the time, which meant that most times Laserdisc players and Laserdisc, the technology itself, was kind of really for more affluent individuals. It wasn't really something for the masses, like the video cassette players and VHS and even Betamax to a degree was uh, designed for. Now, one of the key technological capabilities that set Laserdiscs apart from the video cassettes of the time, and this is what actually allowed for interactivity, was the fact that Laserdiscs did not have to play their files sequentially, or they didn't have to play a video sequentially. You could change tracks on a Laserdisc player and skip around a disc without much of a delay. Compared to fast-forwarding a video cassette, 
which would require long gaps in the action, LaserDiscs were going to be a game changer for interactivity. Because of those features, the LaserDisc would provide the foundation for the creation of the interactive movie that Dyer had been developing in his head. And the act of actually creating the game involved a lot of back and forth between Dyer and the development team and Don Bluth and his team of animators. As you might expect, the animation team knew how to create a top-flight animated film, but they had no clue how to create an animated feature that was designed to be played rather than just watched. At the same time, Dyer and his development staff knew how to create an interactive game, but they had no idea how to create an animated film or to splice those elements together in the appropriate way to create something that would be a truly engaging interactive experience. Despite those differences, however, the teams learned how to collaborate effectively, and they would eventually come up with a framework for the game. The way it would work is a scene would play, and at certain points, the game would expect the player to input an action. That action would then cause the Laserdisc to skip to a different track depending on what that action was, and then the story would continue to play out, whether positive or negative. Early designs for the game had a number of different permutations and paths that a player could progress through, but the teams quickly determined that having a bunch of different potential paths through each scene would be a significant amount of work to build into the game. So they decided on a simpler approach, where most decision points had two separate options. Either the player would put the correct input in and the scene would continue, or they wouldn't and the player would lose a life. So in this way, each scene became a collection of decision points that would either result in success or failure. Now, I do want to say, just from a personal perspective, I think it would have been really awesome to have a version of the game where not just success or failure states existed, but different paths through the story. I think that would have been a lot of fun. We'll talk more about the act of playing Dragon Slayer in a little bit when we get to the pseudo-review portion, but just from my perspective, I think it would have been great to have different paths through the story, not just a you-win-or-you-die kind of thing. And I don't mean to diminish the effort of the team. The team put in a ton of effort into the game, even only focusing on decision points with a success-or-fail kind of option. Every single scene in the game had multiple ways that you could potentially die, and each of those scenes had specific death animations that would play upon failure. And I want you to trust me on this one if you haven't played the game. There are a lot of ways that you could potentially die in this game. So the number of animations and the amount of effort that went into creating all of those different scenes and all of those different paths that resulted in death, even though it wasn't necessarily a positive outcome, was definitely something that there was a ton of effort put in there, and I do not mean to diminish that at all. Anyway, with the general framework already well-defined, the team started creating the main characters and the story for the game, which would involve a bumbling knight named Dirk the Daring and his quest to save a princess in distress, Daphne, who had been kidnapped and trapped in a wizard's tower guarded by a ferocious dragon named Singe. As you might expect with a highly experimental game, there was no budget to hire actors or models for the characters in the game, so most of the voice talent came from internal staff who simply lent their voices to the game and the characters in the game. The only exception was the game's narrator, Michael Rye, who was in fact a professional voice actor and probably best known for portraying the Lone Ranger in the 1960s cartoon of the same name. There was literally a cartoon in the 60s called The Lone Ranger, and Michael Rye was the voice of The Lone Ranger. As for developing the models for the characters, 
there's not a ton of detail I was able to find in my research. So I assume that most characters simply sprung up from the imaginations of the various animators working on the game. There is one exception here, though, and that is the model for Princess Daphne. For that one, the animation team actually used Playboy models as the research subject, and they used those models as the inspiration for how they created Daphne. That must have been really difficult research. Anyway, eventually the entire game came together, and in 1983, Dragon's Lair was released to the arcades. While the team thought it had a hit on its hands, it was still in a risky position. At the time, the video game industry, including arcades, were in a downward spiral. Early projections indicated that up to 50% of all arcades were expected to shut down by the end of the year. 50%! And beyond the industry outlook at the time, Dragon's Lair would be the first arcade game to require 50 cents to play. Prior arcade games had only required a single quarter to play. So with the industry in a nosedive and a higher-priced game than consumers had ever been used to, would Dragon's Lair even find an audience? The answer to that is yes. Yes, it would. Within its first 40 days of release, it would gross over $30 million in sales and would nearly single-handedly turn around the sagging video game industry. The game became as popular to watch as it was to play, and many arcade machines started chipping with a second screen positioned above the cabinet so players in waiting could watch the game while others played it. Dragon's Lair Fever ran rampant, and in short order, there was not only work on a sequel underway, but also a number of spin-off projects, including a Saturday morning cartoon, which actually did release. It was only one season, but there was a Dragon's Lair Saturday morning cartoon. There were also plans for a full-length Dragon Lair movie, which never came out in the 80s, but I do want to talk about that again in a couple minutes, so hold on to that one. Nearly everyone praised the game's visuals, though there were some criticisms about its difficulty. Some people said it was too hard, and the timing of the inputs was too difficult, and then other people said, this is too easy. All the game is is memorization. There's no actual skill involved here. So you had critical response on both sides of the fence as far as the difficulty would go. Regardless of that, the game was a hit, but that's not to say that there weren't any hiccups along the way. One of the big ones that impacted the game was the laser discs, the laser disc players that the games would ship with and that would be used for the actual playing of the game. They would break down fairly frequently. Now, this is one that's a little bit interesting to me. Even though laser discs were designed that you could skip around and go to different tracks and you didn't have to necessarily play everything sequentially. Most LaserDisc players assumed that the laser would mostly be reading data sequentially. So even though it had the capability, the LaserDisc manufacturers and the players of the time, they did not think that they were going to be used for skipping constantly around a disc. So all of that skipping wasn't, they weren't prepared for it, the players weren't designed for it, and that caused machines to break down very quickly, and that ultimately drove additional expense on the arcade operators, especially when you consider how popular the game was. So these these players just kept breaking down, and that's one of the reasons why today, if you're trying to find an actual arcade version of Dragon's Lair, a real arcade version of Dragon's Lair with the original Laserdisc player and the Laserdiscs, 
that's a real tricky one. That's tricky to find. And if you do find it, it's most likely going to be very expensive because a player that actually still works today that was in a Dragon's Lair arcade machine, that's kind of next to impossible to find. There are other options for playing Dragon's Lair, obviously, but given some of those breakdowns and the just the sheer amount of breakdown that would happen with those LaserDisc players, something that is a little rare to find today. Over the years, Dragon's Lair would be ported to numerous other platforms and home systems like we were talking about. The question you might be asking, though, is how would you create an arcade LaserDisc experience at home when the technology just wasn't available, or at least not broadly available? And the short answer to that is, in the 1980s, you really didn't. Most of the ports from, for Dragon's Lair at the time focused on mimicking the feel of Dragon's Lair, but they couldn't really replicate the experience. Here's a few examples that I want to go through, because as you guys know, I love talking about how different games took on different forms across different platforms, and Dragon's Lair is probably one of the most interesting examples of how ports would differ wildly across different platforms. So we're going to start by talking about the NES version of the game, the Nintendo Entertainment System of the game, which is probably one of the more infamous versions of Dragon's Lair to ever be released. And I, before I go into this, I do want to say I had the pleasure of playing this game in total because it was actually out on, on Twitter. Um, I had suggested or I had said that I was going to be uh, playing Dragon's Lair for a future podcast episode. And one of our listeners and a personal acquaintance of mine, David Morton, came forward and said, hey, you got to talk about the NES version. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, I, I probably should. I, and I should probably play it to know what I'm talking about. So I did. And let's talk about the NES version. It is, it's a mixed bag. Honestly, it's a mixed bag. So first of all, it is an incredibly difficult game. And there are different versions, not just on the NES, but between regions, the Dragon's Lair port is different. In the North American version of the game, this is probably the worst version of Dragon's Lair that you can possibly play. The frame rate, is ridiculously low. It feels like you're walking in like a stop motion kind of animation. It's very difficult. The, the pace and speed of gameplay is just incredibly slow. It just feels awful, awful to play. And you couple that with the insane difficulty where if you touch an enemy beyond like a small bat or bug, if you touch any enemy that has any degree of size, you will die immediately. Even though you have a life bar, the life bar doesn't matter in that instance. If you get touched, like I said, by, by smaller enemies, sometimes you still survive and it takes a little bit of life away from you. But for the most part, you touch any enemy, you will die and you will die a lot. And you have limited continues. You have limited lives. You will not be able to beat the game. And actually I'm trying to remember now I don't know that you actually have continues. I don't think you do. I take that back. You do not have continues in the game. You have a limited set of lives that you have available to you. And if you don't beat the game within those set of lives, you will die. Now, I will say that the game itself is relatively short, but it is so challenging that in order to get through it, you really have to spend some time getting to learn the game. The North American version, like I said, is the worst version of the NES game. Uh, there was also versions released in Japan and Europe, both of which are 
more similar to each other. They featured or they were released on a larger cartridge and their frame rate was actually doubled from the North American version, which makes me wonder what the heck was the problem with the North American version that they that they really bungled the frame rate so badly. The Japanese and European version is actually not horrible to play. It felt okay to play or at least better to play. Still insanely difficult and there were some differences around enemy designs or enemies that existed or didn't exist in the game and bosses. There was one situation where a boss didn't even exist that existed in the North American version or it might have been vice versa. Actually, no, there was a boss in the Japanese and European version that did not exist in the North American version. I'm all over the place with the NES one just because I did play it. I did beat it. It was not a great experience. I will say at least the Japanese and European versions were not as bad as a lot of people would say. I mean, trust me, they're bad. These are not things you should go out and play yourself. Please don't. It's torture. But it is not the worst game ever made. It's still a pretty bad experience. Anyway, that's enough. I that's enough about the NES. I don't really want to talk about that one anymore. It's it's giving me PTSD. So we'll move on to the Amiga version. This was the first version that truly captured the feel of the arcade. And the way they did this was I can only imagine through some form of magic because what they did, and we talked a little bit about this during when we talked about our episode on Out of This World or Another World, but basically what they did is they were able to compress a lot of the animations and background scenes of the game to fit onto six floppy disks worth of content, which compared to a laser disc is dramatically smaller, at least storage wise, but it created an experience that kind of felt like the arcade. I mean, the animations weren't quite as crisp or as smooth. The graphics weren't quite as detailed, but it worked. This was the closest you could get to an arcade version of the game back in the 80s, at least from a home perspective. And like we had said, this actually was the inspiration or one of the inspirations that Eric Chahi had used when he went off to create his stylized polygonal engine that he ended up using for Out of This World. Moving on to the Sega CD version, the Sega CD version actually was able to do a fairly decent job of recreating the full motion video from the arcade, primarily because Sega CD was a full motion video machine. It was able to play full motion videos on their discs. That being said, uh, the level of quality there just was not nearly the same as the arcade counterpart. Sega CD had its own limitations, but it was able to play full motion video, just not quite as highly detailed as what you would see in the arcade. Beyond those ports, and there were plenty of others, there's a lot. I think there was one on the on the Commodore 64, which was kind of kind of tried to convert Dragon's Lair into more of a platformer kind of experience, similar to the NES, but not not exactly. The NES was just bad. The Commodore 64, I did not play it, but seemed at least competent with some of the platforming that it had put in there. And there were there were likely others as well that are for whatever reason slipping my mind. But a lot of ports. Beyond those ports, as time went on, there'd be multiple remasters of the game that would be released. And that's actually, or those remasters were primarily done by a company called Digital Leisure. They had gained the rights to Dragon's Lair, its sequel, and the related Bluth arcade game Space Ace. So Bluth worked on three different arcade games, Dragon's Lair, Dragon's Lair 2, and Space Ace. Digital Leisure acquired the rights to those three games 
and they released multiple versions of Dragon's Lair over the years, including CD-based console releases and standalone DVD versions of the product, most of which had much higher quality visuals, some even approaching high definition. Eventually, on the eve of the game's 20th anniversary, there would be a full-scale 3D reimagining of the first game, entitled Dragon's Lair 3D, which would release on the then-modern consoles like the GameCube, Xbox, and PS2. And I want to talk about this one, too, because I also played this one. I had never played Dragon's Lair 3D before, uh, but I did want to play it for this episode of the podcast because, for whatever reason, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, Dragon's Lair is one of those games where a lot of people write it off as being a very short experience, a very unfulfilling kind of experience. Well, if you actually take the time to play it, and you play it a lot, and you become very familiar with it, and you start to get into this groove, and you beat the game, suddenly you realize you kind of want more Dragon's Lair, or at least I did. So I tried out Dragon's Lair 3D. I wanted to play the game. And at first I was looking at it as hey, I'm going to try it out. I'm going to see what it's like. I don't really know much about it, but I'm going to go off and play it. Dragon's Lair 3D is effectively a recreation of the very first game with some additional elements mixed in, but it is in a fully 3D environment with fully controllable characters. And by characters in this point, I mean you can control Dirk the Daring walking around the castle and almost every scene, if not every scene that was part of the original Dragon's Lair is reimagined in Dragon's Lair 3D, albeit in a 3D space and with a lot more interactivity. So every single full motion video sequence that was in the arcade game got expanded into this 3D version of the game. And I will say, Dragon's Lair 3D is not a great 3D platforming game by today's standards. It's not. For the time, it was okay. But it's not something that I would look back and say, oh, you have to go out and play that one. I did play it. I did ultimately play it to completion because, like I said, for whatever reason, I needed more Dragon Slayer in my life as I was preparing for this podcast. But um, it was something that was that was, at least for me, it almost drove additional nostalgia or nostalgic feelings of the game because I had just spent a ton of time working through the original Dragon Slayer, the arcade version of Dragon Slayer. And as I'm playing through the 3D version and I'm seeing all of the scenes that I recall from the arcade or the arcade version uh, reimagined and recreated in full 3D with being able to explore the environments differently, I just really enjoyed it. It gave me some a weird sense of nostalgia. And I had only just played the original Dragon's Lair just a week or so before I started playing Dragon's Lair 3D. And it was just, it was odd how it, how it kind of brought it full circle and and just made me re-experience those feelings all over again. Once again, I don't know that you have to play it. I wouldn't say you, you need to, but I do think it's an interesting oddity. And if anybody is interested, I would definitely check it out. Now, beyond that, more recently, Dragon's Lair would be released as an arcade one-up cabinet. And... Like I mentioned before, there was a movie that was originally in the works back in the 80s, never came out. There is now a Netflix movie that is being worked on that is supposedly going to finally bring the long time in the making Dragon's Lair movie to television screens everywhere. I am definitely looking forward to that one. So, to say that Dragon's Lair has a legacy would be an understatement. 
It spawned countless ports and spinoffs. It revived an ailing arcade industry, and it would remain in the cultural spotlight without fail since its inception. There's a reason why this was one of the few featured arcade games in an episode of Stranger Things from a couple seasons ago. It is also one of the few titles that are enshrined in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. It has remained a pop culture icon. It's remained a part of pop culture history all the way to this day. It also helped to popularize the interactive movie format, which would evolve over time to encompass a number of full motion video titles throughout the 1990s. To put it lightly, Dragon's Lair is likely one of the most significant accomplishments in the early video game industry. It is definitely a title that deserves to be remembered, and it was undoubtedly a landmark title in video games. now going to transition to talking more about Dragon's Lair and how it felt to actually play the game today. So first, let's talk a little bit about the game and its structure. Basically, the way the game was lined up, or the way the game was set up, is you would be presented with a number of different scenes, and in each of those scenes, you would have a number of choices. And the way it worked was every scene, there would be multiple points where you could either pick the right choice or pick the wrong choice. The right choice would lead further on in the scene, or eventually, if you're at the end of the scene, would go on to a new scene. The wrong choice would lead to death. Now, actually figuring out what to do or how to select the right option in any given scene was sometimes an exercise in trial and error. There were some scenes where the correct choice was fairly well choreographed and you had to try to figure out the timing of it. Other scenes, the input that you were required to put in to actually be successful, not all that straightforward or all that visible. And the original arcade version of the game had very few prompts. Some of the re-releases and remasters that would come out would allow you the option to have a prompt appear on the screen that would basically flash and create the game or turn it more into a quick time event or a more traditional, modern, quick-time event kind of experience where, say, the up arrow flashes on your screen. That means you have to hit the up arrow on your keyboard at that moment, and then it would continue on and you'd be successful. In the arcade, there were no prompts for the most part. There were some scenes that had flashing areas of the screen that you could then point in that direction and you would most likely be successful. But for the most part, the arcade was all about observing the video that was playing or observing the scene that was playing and trying to figure out what the game expected you to do. And beyond that, you needed to have the right timing because if you went a little bit too early or you went a little bit too late, you were going to die as well. So it really required a lot of learning, a lot of memorization, and then learning again because in order to get through the entire game, there were quite a few scenes and the overall structure of the game was designed around 13 sets of scenes, and each set would have three possible scenes that would play. So overall in the game, there were 39 different scenes that you would have to play through in order to beat the game. And yes, you had to beat every single scene in order to get to the dragon's lair and get to the final sequence of the game that would then ultimately lead you to success and saving the princess. So the general playthrough of a game, the way it worked, was... 
you would go through one set of 13 scenes. So each set of scenes had three scenes. The game would randomly pick one out of those three, and you'd have to go through 13 sets in sequence. Assuming you got through that, you would then go through the same 13 sets, but the randomizer would choose scenes from each of those sets that hadn't been selected before. So you'd go through another set of 13 scenes, each of which were different than the first set. Some of them were just mirrored versions because that was one of the ways they padded out the game a little bit in the arcade. But then once you got through that second set, you would finally go into the third set of 13 scenes. Those would be the final scenes that had not been selected by the randomizer Earlier in your playthrough, assuming you got through all of those 13, meaning 39 total scenes, you would go on to the dragon's lair and the final sequence in the game. Now, the thing is that I mentioned this, you have to beat every single scene. You do have a few lives that you can fail a couple times without having to restart the game. And there are no continues, even in the arcade. It wasn't like you could pump this full of quarters and continue from where you were. You had to restart the game from the beginning every time you failed or lost all of your lives. If you got all the way through all 39 scenes and you had failed a couple times, but you still had some lives, the game would go back and play those scenes that you had failed so that you had to beat those scenes to move forward. Basically, the game required you to have mastery of every single scene that came before it before it would let you fight Singe in the final battle sequence. This is something that would prove to be very difficult for arcade goers because it would cost 50 cents for a playthrough. Every single playthrough, X number of lives would cost 50 cents. And oftentimes you would die eventually. And then you would have to, if there were other people waiting, which generally speaking for Dragon's Lair, there were, you would have to give up your place to somebody else to start playing it. And a playthrough, a full playthrough takes a good 15 to 20 minutes or so. Um, So if you had somebody really good, they would be monopolizing the machine for a while. If you were good, you'd monopolize the machine for a while. If you were bad, you would have to get off the machine relatively quickly. And then you would just have more people there and you'd have to wait and wait and wait. So my point is that in order to beat the game back in the arcade, it was going to be tough because you'd have to work at it. You have to work at it in order to memorize and learn what to do in every one of those scenes. And a lot of times you didn't even have the opportunity to pump in a bunch of quarters and keep playing because it was in such high demand. Now, of course, once you get uh, to the point where the game is available at in the home and at least in a version that mimicked the arcade at home, then you'd have the opportunity to practice at it and play it without anybody waiting to take a turn for the most part. So at that point, that's when you could really learn. But that wasn't a thing back in the 80s. That didn't become a thing until the late 90s, early 2000s, when that started to become much more available and you'd have that experience actually in the comfort of your living room. So I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says. Dragon Slayer is one of those games, since it originated in the arcade and because it was so popular, I would venture a guess and say if you were looking at the box in a video game store or in a computer game store, you were looking at something you already knew about. A lot of times when we would buy games back around this time frame, and I'm talking 80s, 90s, early 90s especially, you wouldn't know what the game was about. You may not have seen a magazine with it in there, and we certainly didn't have the internet. Dragon Slayer is a little bit different because by the time it reached the uh, boxes, or by the time it was released in boxes for home use, you pretty much knew what it was. Now, of course, there were some people that probably picked up the NES version of the game and thought they were getting an awesome Christmas present and instead got a lump of coal. But 
for the most part, you knew what you were going to get when you saw Dragon's Lair. Regardless, I always like looking at the back of the box because I find the marketing materials and how video game developers and publishers market their titles to be very interesting. So for Dragon's Lair, the back of the box from the PC release back in the early 90s says, Dragon's Lair, you're in for the adventure of your life. Dragon's Lair is back and better than ever on CD-ROM. This full arcade version is packed with spectacular animation and sound from the original Laserdisc, bringing Dragon's Lair to life like never before. You control the actions of Dirk the Daring, a valiant knight on a quest to rescue the fair princess from the clutches of an evil dragon. Fight your way through the castle of the dark wizard who has enchanted it with treacherous monsters and obstacles. Lead on, brave adventurer. Your quest awaits. So that was how they marketed the game, and for anybody who did not know about the game, it kind of gives you the overall story. Anybody who was aware of what Dragon's Lair was, the prospect of actually playing a a fully realized version of the game at home and actually having those full motion video sequences in a similar kind of quality from the Laserdisc would have been awesome at the time. Anyway, let's start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. For this one, I don't even know what I can say here. It is a living, interactive cartoon. And I just want to talk about animation styles a little bit. And animation styles have changed over the years. If you look at some of the older Disney kind of cartoons, they have a very specific style. You know you're looking at a vintage Disney cartoon as soon as it pops up on the screen because it has a very distinct style. Don Bluth and his animation style, same kind of thing. You look at a Don Bluth animated feature or an animated film, and you kind of know it's Don Bluth. Like He has a very distinct style as well. Dragon's Lair was that style. It was good. It felt like a cartoon. You could have very easily seen the quality of visuals. The cartoon was such a high quality. You could have very easily seen that on a on a big theater screen rather than just in an arcade. It was there was really nothing bad about the graphics at all. The graphics were great. They really did feel like you were playing a cartoon. And granted, interactivity, that's a little bit We'll talk about that in a little bit, but the interactivity wasn't necessarily there, but that doesn't detract from the graphics. The graphics were stellar, and especially if you were looking for a Don Bluth-style animated kind of film or feature, it was like playing a Don Bluth film, which was awesome. And even today, because it was effectively a cartoon movie, there is no degradation in quality. I mean, you could talk about the fact that the original Laserdisc, even though it was high quality for the time wasn't really high quality or high definition compared to what we have today. And there are versions of the games that you can play that are remastered and give you those high def kind of visuals. But even the original Laserdisc looked darn good, and it looks good even today. Moving on to the sound and music, there were a lot of sound effects prevalent throughout the game. They all felt well integrated. I especially liked some of the yells and screams that uh, Dirk would have throughout the game in the various scenes. They were comical and, and really well done. I believe that the voice of Dirk, and I don't recall the gentleman's name, but it was one of the one, either one of the directors or one of the individuals involved with the development of the game. He provided the voice for Dirk as well as all of the screams and shouts and cries and everything like that. It was well done. I really enjoyed that. The music, however, 
there just wasn't all that much music. What there was, or where there was music integrated into the game, was great. There just wasn't a lot of it. I wish there would have been some more music, but I can understand why they didn't really focus there. Because for this game, with all of the scene jumping, it wasn't like you were going to be able to create a integrated or an integrated holistic kind of soundtrack that would play throughout the game. Each scene would have to have its own audio cues. Each scene would have to have its own audio tracks. And I could see that becoming very tricky to balance because a lot of times when composers create a soundtrack for a game or for a movie or whatever, the expectation is it's going to play for a little bit of time. You're in a level for a given amount of time. Dragon's Lair, each scene is maybe 15-ish seconds, maybe a little bit shorter, maybe a little bit longer, depending on the scene. There's just not really that much time to develop a musical theme that would go along with each of those independent scenes. And because the scenes were were very random as far as how they were displayed to the player, you didn't really have the opportunity to have a soundtrack that would go along with all of the action in the game. I still wish there was more music, but it just wasn't part of the overall experience. Though I do want to say, and I want to call out specifically, the narrator for the game was awesome and added a really old-timey feel to the game. It felt like one of those old, like, 1950s, 1960s cartoons, which makes perfect sense considering the narrator was originally the voice of the Lone Ranger, like we talked about earlier on. Moving on to the narrative and story, this is pretty standard fantasy kind of fare. You have Dirk the Daring, who is a knight. He has been... Uh, chosen or he is trying to save the princess who has been kidnapped by an evil wizard and imprisoned in the castle and enslaved by a dragon who you will eventually have to slay and you have to traverse this castle full of traps and magical creatures and monsters to save the day. The story here was good enough. I really have no complaints about the story. I'm sure it would have been fleshed out more if it was truly an interactive movie or take the interactive part out. If it was truly a movie that you would be able to watch on television or or on video, I'm sure it would have had a more fleshed out story. For the game, it was completely serviceable. I have no complaints there about the story by itself, but I do have one minor issue with how the game played out as it relates to the story. Like we were talking about, as the game plays through, there is a lot of randomization of which scenes are presented to you. Which means, even though you know the overall story arc of you're a knight, you've got to save the princess, you've got to save the day, you've got to, you've got to defeat the dragon, everybody lives happily ever after. Okay, that's the story arc. Each of the individual scenes were really not connected. And part of that is because every scene was just a way of getting the user to interact and play the game. And because of the randomization, it wasn't like as you played through the game, you had a story thread. There was no story thread. There was an arc, and it was very simple, but each of the scenes did not necessarily contribute to that arc. Each scene was almost independent and stood alone. So if you played the game without understanding what that overarching arc was going to be, you would have almost no way of knowing what the story was. It was just very random, and everything just felt like individual cartoon snippets that didn't make much sense independently. Uh, And I guess that's okay for the most part given what they were trying to do with the game but I thought it could have been better put together and I think they could have removed some of the random elements they could have maybe kept some of the randomization in there but not made everything feel literally entirely random 
and it might have felt a little bit better. But otherwise, it just didn't feel connected as you played the game, even though you kind of had an understanding of what the story was going to be. Moving on to the playability and controls, this was a very simple game. There's very simple degrees of interactivity. Basically, you could move one of four directions with your joystick, and you had a sword that you could use. And based on what was happening on the screen, you would have to press one of those four directions or swing your sword, and then something would happen. It was very simple, but honestly, it worked. A lot of people, and I've seen this in some reviews, many people complain about the fact that the entire game is basically a quick time event, or you're going through a series of quick time events and having to enter inputs at the right time in order to be successful. I will say, yes, it is that simple. And yes, the game is primarily timing and memorization driven. This is not a deeply interactive experience with a ton of different complex controls and meaningful combat or anything like that. It is not that. It is basically a quick time event driven game. But I will say within that framework, and I'm not one of those people that absolutely hates quick time events. I actually find them to be interesting if they're if they're done well. A lot of people will talk about games like more modern games, I guess, like Heavy Rain or Detroit and say, oh, well, that's just like an interactive movie. I don't like the quick time event thing. I actually like it in that context. So I guess for me, the fact that Dragon's Lair played out like a primitive version of those kinds of games kind of worked for me. I will say if you don't particularly like quick time events, uh, you may not like Dragon's Lair, but I would still give it a shot. I I think it was I think it was fine from a playability and control perspective. So overall, how did it feel? How did it feel to play the game today? I've got to say, this was a roller coaster. <laughs> For me, this was a roller coaster. I I uh, shifted between frustration, accomplishment, dejection, and elation, and sometimes all four at the same time. As I started the game, and as anybody would start the game, if you don't have any idea of what you're supposed to do or what moves to make, other than what you would observe on the screen, it is super difficult. And you have to add to that, that it's not just about knowing what directions or what buttons to press, but you have to know the timing. And that timing is tricky. It is not something that comes naturally for the most part. Now, as you play the game and over time, you begin to learn and you begin to learn the different scenes and you begin to become much more familiar with the game. You start to recognize the moves and the timing that you have to do in order to progress through the game. And then eventually you hit a couple of really tricky parts that you just cannot figure out, either because the timing is really tight or the directions don't make any sense with what the animations are that are playing on the screen. And then you feel like you just want to give up and you want to just say, you know what, this game, this is a relic of its time. I don't want to put myself through the frustration anymore. Eventually you persevere. And you get good enough to actually beat the game. And you you have memorized all 39 scenes. You've memorized all of the timing. You get through the game on a single 50 cent play. Well, virtual 50 cent play, since I do not have an I don't I don't have a Dragon's Lair arcade machine, but uh, I do have the ability to emulate it. So I was able to beat the game, no save states, no anything, just a true playthrough like you would have played in the arcade. And you beat it. And then for some reason, and I have no idea, and I talked about this earlier, I have no idea why, you feel like you want to play it again. Because at that point, after you've finally gone through that memorization, after you've finally given up hours of your life, yes, I said that right, hours, to try to memorize all of these cartoon scenes and what movements and timing you have to do, 
Finally, the game has become fun and it's become streamlined. And now you can play it without having to think about it all that much. And you could just observe the animations on the screen and you could kind of say, oh, look, that looks really good. Or, hey, cool, I made that happen because I pressed that direction. It is a weird psychological thing. At least it was for me. Where finally, after putting in so much effort, so much time, it became fun. And I really enjoyed it. And that's why I say it's a roller coaster because I didn't start out like that. I mean, other than the novelty of watching the interactive uh, film, it just wasn't, it was way difficult. It was very difficult. It just wasn't a great experience up front other than the visuals. But then I persevered, I went through it, and eventually it actually became a really enjoyable experience. It's a very weird thing. I will say, though, that experience is short. And we talked about that. It's maybe like 20-ish minutes max for a full playthrough. At that point, you have literally seen the whole game. There are no alternate paths. There are no alternate endings. You've seen everything in the game by the time you reach that 20-ish minute mark. But I do say there has to be some sort of magic here. There is, because eventually you become enthralled, and you almost enter a trance-like state playing the game, where you're timing your inputs, you're progressing through the scenes, your memories are are firing, and, and you remember, oh yeah, at this part I have to press left at this exact point when the scene looks like this. When it all clicks, it feels awesome to play, despite its simplicity and despite the fact that the overall interactivity is fairly limited. So, what is our overall verdict? I will start by saying, today, I love the game. I love it. Like, if if you're talking to me right now, I love the game. When I was trying to get through it, though, I felt really irritated at times. This is not one of those experiences that just feels good to play right from the beginning. Until it does. And then you feel amazing as you watch an interactive movie that you are truly controlling. I was telling you, it's a very odd evolution as far as how it plays out and how your relationship evolves with the game. That being said, I don't know that I can unequivocally add it to the pantheon of classic gaming because there are some rough edges. But for me, it is definitely a golden oldie. I do believe this is a title that you should experience, and for anyone who doesn't want to be punished with a pretty high difficulty curve, feel free to play any of the number of remasters out there, most of which have difficulty reducing options built in, like actually having prompts on the screen. That will, admittedly, take away a bit of your sense of accomplishment, but in the end, the important thing is that you experience this landmark title in some capacity. It truly is that important, and that's why for me... It's a prime example of one of our golden oldies. That was our episode on Dragon's Lair. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out and let me know how I'm doing, give me some feedback, advice, suggestions for future episodes, I would love to hear from you. There's a couple ways you can reach out. I am on Twitter with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So feel free to drop me a note and let me know how things are going. Before we call it for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on id Software's Doom. This is part three of our look at the early id Software team and their games. So if anybody has any particularly fond recollections of that one, 
feel free to write in. I am interested in hearing what you think. At the same time, I recognize this podcast is pretty much available wherever podcasts live, so if you feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave a review on your podcast aggregation engine of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts or trying to get a ton of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. I am just legitimately interested in understanding what everybody thinks of the podcast because my goal is to create the best possible podcast for everyone, and the only way to do that is to get that feedback and make sure that we are doing the right stuff and are meeting everybody's expectations. We are in continuous growth mode. We are always trying to build the community even more than what it is today. And I am just legitimately interested in knowing what you all think about what we're doing here. Hopefully everybody's having a good time. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Doom. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>